in the midst of his grand quest to conquer the Persian Empire, Alexander the Great had made a peculiar decision indeed. A journey to an ancient temple in a distant desert oasis, deep in the arid lands of Egypt. A mysterious prophetic message he heard at this temple planted the seed of transformation in the soul of the young king, a new understanding of his own identity and his mission to found an empire that united East and West to bestride the known world. But this transformation came at great cost, alienating allies, breaking with long-held customs of royalty, and revealing new depths of arrogance and recklessness in his own ambitious heart. The message Alexander received at the Oracle of Siwa was a gift, but perhaps also a burden, for it's no light matter to learn that one is the child of a god. It was fall of the year 332 BC. After battling and negotiating his way through Asia Minor and Syria, including an epic eight-month siege of the island city of Tyre, Alexander turned further south, breaking off his eastward advance into Persia's domains and driving down through the Levant into the borders of Egypt. His reasons for pushing into Egypt, which was at that time still held in the tenuous grip of the Persians, were guided by sound strategy. Leaving a Persian-controlled territory to his rear as he moved east would leave his army open to attack on two sides, and Egypt had wealth he could use to finance his war, and a famous abundance of grain whose supply he needed to secure for his thousands of hungry troops. When Alexander arrived in Egypt, he found little resistance to stop him. The Egyptian people had long rebelled against the rule of Persia, and the Persian kings, ruling from the faraway capitals of Iran, had over the years withdrawn their resources and energy from taming the rest of land, maintaining only a loosening hold. Alexander's entrance finally broke this weakening grip, and the Egyptians welcomed the conqueror, eager to cast off the shackles of their Persian lords. Alexander's success relied not only on his prowess in battle, but his command of logistics and infrastructure. Traveling with a talented team of expert road builders, cartographers, translators, architects, and engineers, and so his first order of business in Egypt, as its new pharaoh, was to establish lines of communication, settle disputes, and appoint officials acceptable both to himself and the native population. The longest-lasting of his deeds was the foundation of a new city at the mouth of the Nile Delta on the Mediterranean Sea, which he named Alexandria a city that would in time grow as one of the vastest, most diverse, and most influential capitals in all the world. Displaying his characteristic sensitivity to the traditions and sensibilities of the people whose land he now controlled, he stepped into the ancient roles of a pharaoh to fulfill the expectations of Egyptians and perform a sense of continuity with 
and respect for their past. As Pharaoh Septenre Meriamun, Alexander carried out the ritual duties of kingship practiced in Egypt for three millennia. It was now that he conceived the idea to pay homage at a site sacred to Egyptian pharaohs from ages past, the Oracle of Siwa. The oasis of Siwa, far in the unforgiving desert west of Alexandria and the Egyptian capital of Memphis, was home to a temple of Amun, the chief god of the Egyptians, deeply connected with the identity and powers of the pharaoh. Like the oracles best known to the Greeks, like the holy shrine of Delphi, Siwa's temple of Amun was a place of prophecy, where the messages of the divine were interpreted and revealed by the priests who resided there. The oracle of Amun at Siwa was familiar to those in the Greek world, among scholars and historians who had long believed that the myths and gods of the Egyptians were profoundly interrelated with those of the Greeks. Tales told of the oracle's establishment by the god Dionysus, and visits to the shrine by the mythical heroes Heracles and Perseus. Common practice among ancient peoples was to draw equations between gods and goddesses of different cultures, who shared similar powers and responsibilities. So the Egyptian Isis, goddess of love and procreation, was aligned with the Greek Aphrodite. Thoth, god of writing and secret knowledge, was associated with Hermes, the herald and interpreter, who bridged the divine and mortal realms. And Amun, the creator, the god of the sky, and the overseer of the pharaoh's immortal authority, was equated with Zeus, the father of gods and men, who dwelt in the sky and ruled the storm clouds, the god whose kingship in heaven inspired the power of mortal kings on earth. This link between Amun and Zeus was widely recognized in a single name that united both deities in one, as the god Zeus Amon. And the figure of Zeus Amon, above all, was key to Alexander's mission to visit the Oracle of Siwa. As pharaoh and king, the upholder of cosmic order on earth, it was with the great monarchs of the Egyptian and Greek pantheons that he longed to identify his own royal image. And so the new pharaoh made haste, striking out with his entourage from the rich lands of the Nile Valley into the arid deserts to the west. After two days of easy journeying, the young king and his men were faced with the astonishing sight of a barren sea, a howling waste of rolling waves of white sand, without a tree or a patch of soil to be found. Undeterred, they ventured on into the wilderness, as if leaving behind the known world and entering a strange and dangerous borderland at the edges of the earth. Legends tell of the divine omens that accompanied Alexander's march through the desert, how, when their water was running out and the sun was mercilessly baking the landscape, 
Dark clouds moved across the sky and gave them relief from the heat, and miraculous rain fell across the sands. And how twin serpents, or flying crows, appeared to guide their journey, keeping them on a steady course. Four days they trekked through the dunes, until at last they reached the green oasis of Siwa, nourished by springs and shaded with woods. And at the center of the village there stood the Temple of Amun. Alexander's visit to the Oracle would have long-reaching ramifications, but many details of what actually occurred there remained mysterious and ambiguous, a cause for speculation by the generations of ancient authors who recorded the events. The truth of the matter perhaps lay only with Alexander himself. However the accounts differ, they agree on the message Alexander received from the priests who interpreted the oracle of Zeus Ammon. Two ancient writers, the Roman Quintus Curtius Rufus and the Greek Plutarch, each writing some four to five hundred years after Alexander's lifetime, hand down the best-known tales of the visit to Siwa and the young king's exchange with the high priest and the god. When Alexander entered the grand edifice of the temple, the eldest priest of Amun came to receive him and hailed the new pharaoh as son of Zeus Ammon, a greeting Alexander happily accepted. What lay behind this first exchange with the priest may be the bridging of a cultural divide. In the system of beliefs surrounding the pharaohs of Egypt, Amun, the supreme god, was believed as a matter of sacred convention to be the father and guardian of each pharaoh who ruled over the land. And so, as King Alexander approached the oracle of Siwa, as the new pharaoh Setpenre Meriamun, the priest's greeting, expressed in the Greek idiom identifying Amun as Zeus Amon, was only to be expected. And to this tradition Alexander, perhaps sensitive to this convention, gave his assent without question. According to other interpreters of the event, another reason behind the priest's ceremonious greeting may reside in the language barrier, as an Egyptian priest attempted to welcome a Greek-speaking king. The aged high priest intended to address Alexander with an intimate greeting as my child, in Greek, O Pideon, but enunciated the words as O Pideos, which in Greek would mean O child of Zeus. Whether the priest's salutation to the son of Zeus was fully intended or not, Alexander's dialogue with him continued. The king went on to ask about matters close to his kingship and to his heart. He inquired of the god Zeus Ammon if his destiny was to rule over all the world. And the priest, hearing and interpreting the divine response, answered that it was his destiny indeed, and that Alexander would never taste defeat as long as he lived, up to the time 
when he would one day join the gods in the life to come. Then Alexander, remembering the assassination of his father, King Philip II, in Macedon four years before, asked the god if his father's killers had all been punished and his father had been avenged. At this request, the priest drew back and corrected Alexander's phrasing. He may ask about King Philip's murderers, but he had no father but the god Zeus Ammon. When their meeting was finished, Alexander bestowed lavish gifts upon the temple and priests and made rich sacrifices to the god of the oracle. His mission in Siwa was done, and done successfully. His legitimacy as pharaoh had been affirmed, his link to Zeus and Amun had been ratified, and his status as the son of Zeus had been audibly proclaimed at this oracle, a place of great antiquity and reverence. Alexander was the king of Macedon, the pharaoh of Egypt, and now a demigod. Alexander returned across the desert to his capital in Memphis, and after finishing his sojourn in Egypt, assembled his army and marched forth to continue his campaign against the Persian Empire, whose provinces lay before him to the east. After a string of decisive victories and the betrayal and death of the last Persian king, Darius III, Alexander would realize his dream of conquest, crafting a massive new domain out of the husk of the old Persian Empire and uniting the Greek, Egyptian, and Eastern worlds under a single ruler for the first time. Among the long list of world-altering events that took place during Alexander's brief but meteoric life of 32 years, his short visit to the Oracle of Siwa had a far greater impact than would appear at first glance. Alexander evidently took to heart the revelation of his divine birth. And over the years, as his power grew, those around the king witnessed a change. Alexander's own belief in his stature as a demigod morphed from mere political posturing to an article of faith. No doubt he was a ruler cognizant of the need to conform to the expectations of his subjects, be they Macedonian, Greek, Egyptian, or Persian. And Alexander's deliberate cultivation of his image as a victorious hero in the tradition of Achilles or Heracles, who were also demigods, easily embraced the idea of his lineage from Zeus as part of his personal myth-making. But historians Greek and Roman attest to the loud controversies Alexander's increasingly autocratic behavior caused within his court and among his army. In the eyes of his Macedonian officers and comrades, coming from a Greek culture that frowned upon explicit declarations of a ruler's divinity during his life, Alexander's passive acknowledgement of foreign convention seemed to become a total embrace of barbarian ways of life, 
a disgrace that verged on blasphemy. Signs of Alexander's expanding adoption of royal regalia and ceremony from the Persian East were met with outrage. The clothes he wore, the signet rings he used, and the gestures of respect he demanded his guests to perform. Alexander's mortal life ended suddenly in 323 BC, leaving to posterity millennia of speculation as to his true motives and beliefs surrounding his own divinity. But whatever his posture as a demigod reflected about his character, for all the misgivings the Macedonians had, the idea that the king was a semi-divine figure would be embraced across the new Mediterranean world that Alexander had made. Coins struck that bore Alexander's image depicted him with the horns of a ram, a visual symbol of Zeus Ammon and the Egyptian Amun, for whom the ram was a sacred emblem. His successors, who carved his grand empire into their own kingdoms, created myths of their own to suit their new claims to kingship, representing themselves to the masses as demigods in their own right, following the course Alexander had laid. As the centuries passed and the Roman Empire eclipsed those kingdoms, Roman poets hailed the majesty of their sovereigns and the language of divine power they had learned from the self-made mythologies of the Hellenistic kings. And so, in the scope of history, Alexander the Great had not only achieved tremendous power, but through his example of divine and human kingship, he had changed the very idea and image of power for ages to come. And it all began on that fateful day in the dry desert of Egypt at the Oracle of Siwa. <laughs>